Hello, everyone. You are listening to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. And also, as far as I know, the only uh, capitalist power podcast. But anyway, this is going to be a supplemental episode of the Seeing Like a State book series. I don't have a guest today, and I'm only covering the intro to part three, uh, which I thought was its own chapter because it has so much interesting information in it, um, and also a supplemental um, study that I found. It was uh, one of the sources that Scott cited, and it's from a book on Marxist criminology, which I am planning so far to go back to because it seems really interesting. But the uh, the specific article was actually originally printed um, in Radical History Review from 1982, and it's called Hunting, Fishing, and Foraging, Common Rights and Class Relations in the Postbellum South. So those are the two things I'm going to cover. I'm going to start with the part three intro and get that out of the way. And uh, this paper will be, I think, the majority of this episode. Although now that I'm looking at it, it's not as long as I thought, but we'll see. Uh, I think it'll be good. So, we just got finished with Chapter 5, which was about Lenin and his high modernist ideology. And how it was criticized by Rosa Luxemburg and Alexandra Kolontai. And so part three is going to go a little bit further on the authoritarian high modernist stuff. Chapter six is about Soviet collectivization. So the collectivization of farms in the Soviet Union in the 30s. And uh, chapter seven is going to be about uh, forced villagization or forced resettlement in Tanzania. So I haven't gotten to that chapter yet. I've already read chapter six um and i've I've got that ready to go we're gonna be recording that soon um but i didn't want to go two weeks without doing an episode and i thought this these two items were very interesting and worth talking about so again uh part three it's just the intro section um It focuses on describing the forms of statelessness that existed prior to the modern era. Um, In Southeast Asia, there was widespread frontier, as Scott puts it, as in untamed land, which meant that if a ruler started getting out of hand, people could easily flee from the ruler and, as Scott puts it, literally vote with their feet. Scott mentions that in in these countries like um, Vietnam and Thailand and Cambodia, I think are the ones he mentions. Um, the rulers there tried various methods of forcing, you know, the populations into permanent subjugation. So he mentions that in Thailand the rulers came up with the solution of actually tattooing their subjects or serfs as if they were property so they could see who they belonged to. And they would like send bounty hunters through the forest regularly to round up the people with that certain tattoo. 
uh, which is pretty wild. Um, he also describes... Uh, he calls it Burma, but I think it's called Myanmar now, although I'm not sure because apparently the naming is politically contentious and the people who named it are not seen as like legitimate rulers by a lot of people. And I think the people that recognize that name are like America. <laughs> so, but, but as I understand it, Burma also was like the colonial name. So I don't, I don't know which one to use. I'll just use Myanmar, I guess. Um, because that's the one I remember better. So it'll just come out. But anyway, um, yeah, in Myanmar, the form of society that people lived in was like sort of uh, determined by its elevation. So in the lowlands of Myanmar, there were flooded rice paddies, pretty common in Southeast Asia. And um, those rice paddies were part of the state because, you know, working on a rice paddy is a sedentary lifestyle rice is a grain so it's very easy to confiscate it um, as uh, you know a state's soldier um, you can come up and just take it when it's harvest time and the, the harvest time is pretty predictable um, and it's you know easy to control sedentary populations so as you go further up in elevation um, people were practicing more like shifting cultivation, which for those who don't know is um, like the more ancient form of agriculture. Uh, one of the main types is slash and burn. Most people have heard of that, but it's basically uh, temporary agriculture. So you, you know, plant, some crops and then you harvest those and then you move on to somewhere else so it's somewhat compatible with a nomadic lifestyle and and so the people that were at that elevation were um you know less what the state would call civilized and then if you go further up uh the people are are even less so he didn't really uh i don't think he gave any specifics on what sort of food system the people high up in the mountains used, I would imagine probably hunting or pastoralism, but I don't know. That's just a guess. Um, so even like right next to the capital city, if, you know, if the capital had a mountain next to it, there would be stateless people there. Uh, they would just be high up in the mountains because it's, it's really hard for soldiers to, you know, control people that are, up in the mountains and I think that's still like somewhat the case in a lot of places it's probably harder now with modern lifestyles and you know modern surveillance tools but I think if you wanted to escape the state the, your best choice would probably be the mountains they can't be I mean they can be destroyed they they have been destroyed in like West Virginia but um, you know not completely obviously and 
it's not like a marsh where the marsh can be drained and you know most marshes have been drained uh in fact so like yeah mountains or desert probably the two best places if you want to escape the state uh that you could go So, um, Scott elucidates the characteristics that are shared by non-state spaces. So I'm just going to read directly here. Of course, the ecology of different elevations is only one among many factors that might characterize non-state spaces. They also appear to share one or more of the following distinctive features. They are relatively impenetrable, in parentheses, wild, trackless, labyrinthine, inhospitable, their population is dispersed or migratory, and they are unpromising sites of for surplus appropriation. Thus, marshes and swamps, in parentheses, one thinks of the now beleaguered marsh Arabs on the Iraqi-Iranian border. So, uh, again, this book was written in 1998, so this was actually um, after the marshes of Iraq had been drained. And that was in retaliation for um, a Shia uprising after the I think it said after the first Gulf War um, against Saddam Hussein obviously uh, so back to the passage um, thus marshes and swamps ever shifting deltas and estuaries mountains, deserts in parentheses favored by nomadic Berbers and Bedouins and the sea in parentheses home to the so called sea gypsies of southern Burma and more generally the frontier have all served as non-state spaces in the sense that I've been using the term so one of the first episodes that me and Chris did was actually about what's called a thalassocracy which is a, a type of society of seaborne people and we talked about the Phoenicians who had a society that lasted over 2,000 years. And they had a couple cities, but they spent most of their time on ships uh, traveling around the Mediterranean. And they basically dominated the Mediterranean through trade. But um, anyway, back to... Oh, and uh, that that is episode 303. So if you're interested, check that out. But back to seeing like a state so um, yeah he says the frontier has served as non-state spaces in the sense that I've been using the term um, so he continues he talks about the Maredas people of Kalimantan which is the Indonesian portion of Borneo one of the islands in the Indonesian island chain um, which is also shared with East Malaysia and Brunei Brunei is completely located on Borneo um, Malaysia is partly located on Borneo and partly I think on the continent um, so yeah Moranis people nomads from Kalimantan and they have long plagued the attempts at statecraft there so in an attempt to make them more legible to the Indonesian state the state built villages for them which were like very like planned sort of villages you know very straight lines and clustered houses and everything and they attempted to force the Moretus people into 
uh, sedentism. They, of course, did not do that. But um, they have been instructed to look good for the government officials if they ever came by. So, uh, you know, people wanted them to at least pretend like they were living in houses. Uh, he did, I don't think he ever clarified whether they did that or not. But he does clarify that the point is basically that since they live partly along these main roads through Kalimantan, they want those roads to be as controlled as possible. Um, Scott then connects this behavior to more extreme versions of it. First, the forced resettlement of villagers in Malaya, which is a British colony who were perceived as helping Chinese guerrilla movements. They were like uh, rubber tapping nomads and they were forced into villages with straight roads and numbered houses. And then also uh, I think he says that that inspired this later project, but the strategic hamlet project that um that i talked about in the episode on chapter three um so yeah militaries would basically force them to live in villages that had straight rows of identical houses and could be easily patrolled and monitored by soldiers to ensure that they weren't providing material or intelligence to rebels still more extreme than the forced settlement is the fort and the logical conclusion of that is the concentration camp where the population uh, is confined to a small space and completely controlled Uh, so Scott says this resolves the apparent paradox between the productivity of small home versus plantations as in the ability to produce a good not the economic definition of productivity um, and the preference of states for large plantations. So what that means is smallhold farms are actually more productive as in able to produce more stuff per unit of land, but the state favors large plantations despite being a lot less productive the reason they are preferred is because they allow similar advantages to the forced settlement or concentration camp. That is the ability to manage, surveil, and prevent workers from supporting rebellions. Uh, They're also more taxable. I don't know if I'm getting to this in my notes later, but um, yeah, they're, they're easier to tax because rather than being a bunch of disparate small units, each with a separate uh, group of people in charge of them. It's just one big hierarchy um, making you know, a collectible uh, collective amount of revenue. Um, Scott points out in the footnotes that the belief in the efficiency of large plantations may have been based on the production of sugarcane, which actually does have some efficiency gains from centralization. And that's specifically because sugarcane needs to be crushed immediately to prevent the juice from evaporating or fermenting, 
and thus resulting in losses of product. So large plantations with on-site mills that can process the cane are more advantageous for that. Um, And on top of that, processing compacts the product from its wooden form to a liquid form, which results in further efficiency gains from storage and and transportation. Um, So back to the main text. Scott uses the example of Malayan rubber production. So the colonial British governors expected the larger plantations to be more efficient, but they quickly found out that they were not. However, they continued to favor the large plantations, not only by buying from them at a higher cost uh, for their product, but even by limiting exports from smallhold plantations during a gut, uh, gut, a glut caused by the end of World War One. So, one of the biggest um, sources of demand for rubber, obviously, is. Militaries, mechanized militaries. So when World War One ended, there was a lot of rubber left over that wasn't going to be used for tanks and guns and stuff like that. Um, which caused, you know, uh, loss in the power of the sellers of the rubber. Um, it was a it was a buyer's market after that. So the British came up with this plan called the Stevenson Plan, which basically limited exports from those smallhold farms in order to attempt to uh, get the price back up. But uh, it did not work. What actually happened was. The British lost control of the global rubber market. Um, it was mainly ceded to the Dutch, who had rubber plantations elsewhere. Um, and the Soviets also put resources into producing synthetic rubber. So they turned um, alcohol, I think from potatoes, into polybutadine, which is still a still used form of synthetic rubber it's one of the most common synthetic rubbers in use um some speculate that the protection of large the largest state farms in malaya may have been a nationalistic move to protect british owned plantations however the favoring of large estates continued after the country won its independence so even though those smallhold farms were also Malaysian um, once the state had won its independence they still favored the large plantations so if it was a nationalistic move it would make no sense for the state to continue doing that after they won independence as I mentioned earlier another advantage of the largest states is that they're much easier to assess and collect taxes from because of monocropping, legible land holdings, and centralized organization. So I, I left out monocropping earlier. Um, it's easier to assess the tax liability if you have a large plantation that just grows one thing, as opposed to a smallhold farm which tends to grow more diverse sets of crops. Malaysia also had a frontier expansion in the 20th century, 
and part of that project included state assistance to to settle land. Um, So Scott says he met Malaysians in Kedah who told him it was fairly common knowledge that in order to be chosen to settle a frontier, you had to have a recommendation from a local politician, which implies that you had to have, like, good politics, according to them. And uh, Scott compares these frontier settlements to company towns, so I'm going to read the passage here. The administrative and economic situation of the Malaysian settlers was comparable to that of the company towns of early industrialization, where everyone worked at comparable jobs, were paid by the same boss, lived in company housing, and shopped at the same company store. Until the plantation crops were mature, the settlers were paid a wage. Their production was marketed through state channels, and they could be dismissed for any one of a large number of infractions against the rules established by the scheme's officials. The economic dependency and direct political control meant that such schemes could regularly be made to produce large electoral majorities for the ruling party. Collective protest was rare and could usually be snuffed out by the sanctions available to the administrators. It goes without saying that the settlements of the Federal Land Development Authority allowed the state to control the mix of export crops, to monitor production and processing, and to set producer prices in order to generate revenue. And um, I, I highlighted that part about the economic dependency being made to produce large electoral majorities. I, I thought that was especially uh, interesting. So Scott points out in the footnotes for for this section that Malaysian plantations had difficulty recruiting laborers from the local population. There was little reason for a Malaysian to work on a large estate likely in brutal conditions for less income, if I had to guess, when they could instead be a smallhold farmer and work for themselves. So the British colonizers ended up importing cheap labor from China and India, much like it did in the post-emancipation American colonies, where it was the same situation. The slaves weren't forced to work on plantations anymore, and they were able to... um, get like small plots of land and so there had to be uh i think this is a slur but you know that's the term that's used the coolies were brought in from china and india and so a lot of those caribbean islands have large indian populations uh because of the post-revolution um plantation economy so another footnote points out uh, related to the creation of electoral blocks from company towns and state settlements that there is a similar outcome from the U.S. bombing and defoliating of the forest in Vietnam. The fleeing refugees who were grouped into camps, refugee camps, were more easily manipulated in electoral strategies. And this wasn't just like incidental it was an intentional effect that the architects of the war were well aware of um it also has analogous instances in history such as the proletarianization of the peasantry and the resulting radical politics of the declining rural population so that's the end of the intro to part three pretty short but also uh i think a wealth of information So now I will start on this uh, article that was cited 
it was actually it was cited in part three um but i didn't mention it in those notes because i'm gonna talk about it at length here This other source is called Hunting, Fishing, and Foraging, Common Rights and Class Relations in the Postbellum South by Steve Hahn, who is a Marxist historian, and it's reprinted from Radical History Review 26, which is from 1982, and uh, I got this from a book called Crime and Capitalism, Readings in Marxist Criminology. So, Hahn sets the stage for this study with a specific historical event. He says, When the Beach Island Farmers Club, a planter organization in Aiken, South Carolina, met in eight, January 1875, it passed resolutions instructing members to, quote, prosecute all trespassers and violators of the game laws, prevent, quote, tenants and laborers from keeping, quote, stock of any kind on any enclosed or unenclosed land not specifically allotted to them and that livestock quote trespassing beyond allotted land be impounded on the for the first offense and forfeited or destroyed for the second so they further directed that all members of the wider community should do so as well and this was basically an attempt at a sort of uh, revanchist project Um, so it was part of this whole movement after the loss of the civil war and the abolition of us chattel slavery, former plantation owners had obviously lost their source of free labor and they aimed to recapture it somehow. Since former slaves were able to live off the land by fishing, trapping, hunting, foraging, and grazing, they were not only no longer the property of plantation owners, but didn't have to work for them for pay either because they could subsist on their own. The enforcement of trespassing and poaching laws and the enclosure of the commons was an established pattern for destroying non-state ways of living and proletarianizing people. And that was pioneered, obviously, in post-medieval Europe. Han notes that most land in the antebellum south was fee simple. This is the type of land ownership that we're most familiar with. Older countries had land ownership laws that were tied to the medieval period, Um, such as primogeniture, where land is inherited by the firstborn son, and fee-tail, where restrictions were put on the sale of land, and it would be passed down based on provisions in a will, usually to a single male heir. But it it couldn't be sold. Uh, However, it was customary for unimproved land, even if it were de jure-owned, to be treated as commons in the the South, um, both pre- and post-bellum. Uh... Han quotes a wealthy South Carolina planter, William Elliott, from 1859. Though it is the broad common law maxim that everything upon a man's land is his own, and he can shut it out from his neighbor without any wrong to him, yet custom with us, forfeited by certain decisions in the court, has gone far to qualify and set limits to the maxim. So, public opinion at the time was broadly in favor of these commons. People saw it as their right to hunt wild animals which uh, Han supports with a court transcript. So a prosecutor says, 
Would you pursue a deer if he entered your neighbor's enclosure? And a hunter says, certainly. The prosecutor responds, what if his fields were planted and his cotton growing or his grain ripe? It would make no difference. I should follow my dogs where they might. And the judge says, and pull down your neighbor's fence and trample on his fields? The hunter says, I should do it, though I might regret to injure him. The judge says, you would commit a trespass. You would be mulcted in damages. There is no law for such an act. And the hunter says, it is hunter's law, however. Hunting, besides being a way of life, was also a fancy sport for rich plantation owners, though. So, naturally, they projected their ecologically destructive tendencies onto others and feared that peasant hunters would deplete the supply of game and thereby threaten one of their favorite sports. Ah, the poor sport. The wealthy began to exert pressure for game laws in the mid-19th century and had partial successes in Maryland and Virginia. Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia also started hunting seasons for deer, turkey, partridge, and quail. Unfortunately for the wealthy, the game laws in England were widely viewed as tyrannical, and so that the popular resistance to those laws carried over to the uh, American situation, which limited the actual force of the game laws. Elliot, the planter, noted that the preservation of game is thus associated with the ideas of aristocracy, peculiar privileges to the rich, and oppression toward the poor. It was also common at the time for cattle, hogs, and sheep to be grazed on common land. Talking of how grazing animals were fed simply by turning them loose in the woods, one resident of South Carolina said, We raise our hogs by allowing them to range in our woods where they get fat in the autumn on acorns. They also explained, We really raise cattle with so little care that it would be a shame to charge anything for their keep up to three years. So they literally just like let them loose in the woods to eat whatever they want. Prior to the global dominance of capitalism, this was a common practice in Europe and Africa and made its way to the Americas as well. A law passed in 1759 in Georgia specified precise guidelines for farmers to enclose i said enclosure to enclose their crops to allow grazing on uncultivated land poorer whites who to be clear were still landowners were committed to common rights to be clear for one another and did not view individual enterprise as a practical way to achieve independence Social relations of the antebellum yeoman were primarily mediated by kinship and mutual obligation rather than trucking or bartering like, uh, what's his fuck said? Adam Smith. That guy. The plantation owners had to confront the labor question, as they called it, after the abolition of slavery. Where previously they had a source of free labor from which their fortunes came, now the status of not only their wealth but the power of the state in the South was in critical danger. The upper class's arguments for proletarianization of of Euro-American non-state people were echoed in Reconstruction. To quote directly, The old masters confronted the issue of the labor question with little optimism. Experience had demonstrated, they believed, that black people were inherently lazy, indolent, and unreliable, and would never submit voluntarily to the demands of a plantation regime. Quote, as a general rule, the world over, in freedom or in bondage, the southern cultivator declared, labor can be extracted from the Negro only by compulsion. 
Friedman tried many new ways of life after emancipation. To quote, they roamed the countryside, made their way to cities and towns, squatted on unenclosed land, reluctant to sign contracts and return to regimented fieldwork. They looked to and felt they had a right to set up for themselves. One freedman explained, all I want is to get four or five acres of land that I can build me a little house on and call my home. And uh, I fixed that specific quote a little bit because it was uh, transcribed in a very offensive way. So the labor question therefore led naturally to the land question, whether or not the federal government would expropriate the plantation owners and distribute it to the freedmen. While obviously that didn't happen, the available commons meant that there wasn't an endless supply of cheap, obedient workers. And uh, as an aside here, I just wanted to point out that I think the long-term solution to this has been the U.S. immigration system, which in combination with its foreign policy creates a continuous flow of immigrants, many destitute or refugees, to fill the need for cheap labor. We have essentially two tiers of immigration. One... Those who are wealthy and educated have one system of immigration that involves visa sponsorship, being educated in American English and American civics, which costs money to acquire and is subject to approval by bureaucrats. They are called naturalized, and in many ways, uh, they're still second-class citizens. And two, those who are destitute or non-Anglophone and aren't sponsored by a U.S. corporation do not get approved by bureaucrats, come without a visa, or don't leave when their visa expires. They are called illegal, and depending on your interpretation of the first category, are second- or third-class citizens. These laborers fill the bulk of jobs that were left vacant by emancipation, so they're the ones that are currently working on the large plantation-like farms. The main differences between this system and um, the chattel slavery system um, are that today field workers aren't chattel, they aren't subject to the same level of worksite brutality, but they are at risk of being put in a concentration camp or deported. So not quite the same as chattel slavery, but uh, not really free either. So back to the article. Um, in the Caribbean, freemen were, freedmen were able to subsist on the marginal land that was allotted to them, which is called provision ground, um, and uninhabited land. This caused the postbellum plantation owners to fear a similar outcome in the South, leaving plantation owners unable to produce cotton. Alabama's Clark County Journal warned that freedmen will raise their corn, squashes, pigs, and chickens, and will work no more in the cotton, rice, and sugar fields. Aw, poor plantation owners. Soon the southern states would enact laws against vagrancy and rental of land to freedmen, as well as pushing for stricter property rights and, uh... I don't know about the latter, but the laws against vagrancy definitely uh, are from the European experiment in proletarianization. In only a matter of years, many states had passed trespass laws imposing fines on anyone who enters enclosed or unenclosed land for timber, fodder, or forage without the owner's, owner's permission. That, again, comes from the European proletarianization. Georgia had an even stricter law against squatting or setting upon enclosed or unenclosed land of another, whether public or private, without bona fide claim, title, or consent. And again, this comes from, uh, you know, precedent in forced settlement of nomads in Europe. The push for game and stock laws returned during this period. The labor question, 
the cost of fencing uncul uh, sorry fencing cultivated land did i mention that earlier i don't even know just to make sure that i mentioned it um there were laws that forced planters to put fences around the cultivated land um so that the uncultivated land could be commons and if they didn't then they were liable for any damages or whatever um so the labor question the cost of fencing uncultivated uh, land and the cynical conservationist arguments helped to sell game and stock laws uh to the public the tragedy of the commons argument first described in 1833 to justify closing the english and irish commons was deployed in the postbellum south for the same reasons um and i will note the tragedy of the commons probably more well known for the garrett hardin essay which is uh as i put it in a tweet a um a pro eugenics and pro enclosure screed written written by an open white nationalist uh which is true he is an open white nationalist um so there was still widespread resistance to the game and stock laws even from poor white settlers who while they saw freedmen as their enemies found themselves in agreement with them on property laws to quote we have a class of farmers and stock owners among us who are opposed to any innovation on the practice of their fathers from the use of the subsoil plow to the enactment of a no fence stock law i think that might have been william elliot the plantation owner I didn't write down who it actually was. Even in the South during slavery, black slaves had a reputation as exceptional fishermen and trappers and had free reign to do so as well as control of most of the good fishing spots. So, um, I think I'm, I think I wrote this down later on, but I'll just say it now. There were two broadly, two systems of slavery in, uh, the antebellum South one was called the task system and one was called the gang system so the gang system was uh by far the more brutal version where you would bring a whole gaggle of slaves uh to the work site and you would basically just force them to work until the master was satisfied they would all have to work at the same time the task system was not quite as brutal and that is where the slaves would get a specific task for the day and once they were done with it they would have free time to do what they wanted to and so a lot of the slaves in the task system um spent their free time fishing and trapping animals and so they were actually able to find all these good fishing spots and they sort of had a little monopoly on them um, many slaves were also adept at grazing and were able to keep animals even while living on plantations. Um, so again, they would have been under the task system, most likely. So after emancipation, enough of the freedmen were dependent on grazing animals that one was quoted by Edward King as saying, I tell you one thing, this year no fence law was one of the lowest things I ever did. Planters wanted legislation to specify damages for violation of stock and game laws because they feared that if left up to the courts to decide, it would essentially cause the laws to not be enforced. Um, and if I remember right, the article actually um, cites like 
some reasoning for that. There were basically violations of the fence laws where um, even though the law was stricter on the violator, the court side would sided with them anyway because it was basically common law. While black men were able to win political office as Republicans for a short time during Reconstruction and hold off game and stock laws, it wasn't long before the white reactionaries had retaken control of the government. The ideal situation for the plantation owners was essentially feudalism because they felt it was, quote, beneath their dignity to bid for the labor of ex-slaves. The planters would have had the freedmen be dependents of the planters so that they could be kept around all the time and forced to work for subsistence. Freedmen who did wage labor used the free labor system somewhat to their advantage, avoiding gang labor. Um, yeah, sorry, I, there's a whole parenthetical explaining it, which I already did. So they, they avoided gang labor, and I think I meant to finish that sentence, but I never did. Um, basically, if there were any unfavorable employment situations on um, the farms where they were working for pay, they would just move on elsewhere. And they sort of, uh, I think they sort of worked together to avoid the same places. A further important gain made by plantation owners in their revanchist project came in the form of the lien law. Many southern states passed laws that allowed agricultural suppliers to place liens on the crops grown with their supplies. Thus, the major landholders could go into the supply business, provide the necessary supplies for agriculture, and take ownership of the produce without having to pay for labor. Um, I don't have specific evidence of this, but the McCormick family, who were definitely plantation owners, created one of the largest agricultural equipment manufacturing companies in history, um, which... Let me look that up real quick. Yeah, it was called the International Harvester Company. Um, it's now defunct. I think it went out of business, yeah, 1985. So only three years after this was written, interestingly. Um, but yeah, so he created one of the largest agricultural equipment manufacturing companies in history. And he definitely extended credit to customers in order to sell the equipment. So it's very likely that the McCormick family took advantage of the lien laws. According to Han, purchasing goods on credit, the norm, required farmers to mortgage their crops as security, and storekeepers made plain their preference for cotton. So, the need to get this agricultural equipment and the high cost of the equipment, which, if it behaves anything like other products where... Uh, people mainly get it through credit. You know, the price is way above what it needs to be um, based on the cost. There's just very high margins. Um, so they raise they raise the prices of these uh, equipment, of this equipment, and um, say like, yeah, you can pay in kind and we prefer cotton. So it's basically forcing people back into growing cotton. Um, so in the 1880s, stock laws were again being pushed by the wealthy with various arguments in its favor. So to quote directly, open range foraging they submitted was sad evidence of old fogeyism 
general ignorance, and backwardness of agriculture, contributing to timber scarcity, inefficiency, and the proliferation of useless scrubby stock. It was a custom dignified by no more than than peculiar circumstances and a hard-headedness, a sap on economic progress and prosperity, and a violation of natural rights. Indeed, many supporters of fencing reform viewed common grazing as a privilege or favor bordering upon theft. My neighbor has as much right to pasture in my enclosed land as my unenclosed, one of them put it, as his stock robs it of its vegetable matter, making it poorer every day. Which, as I understand it, is not really true. If you graze land, it generally helps the soil because ruminants are generally good for the soil. But uh, that wouldn't get in the way of their argument, so... Opponents of the stock laws argued that the basis of liberty, rights, and equality was reciprocity and commonwealth, saying, The woods were put here by our creator for a benefit to his people. That proponents were men who ever split but few, if any, rails. And that while my cow is on his neighbor's land eating grass, his is mine, and that makes it all right. Despite proponents of stock laws attempting to disenfranchise voters and commit election fraud, Stock laws were repeatedly crushed through the 1880s. They shifted their strategy to work at the county level, and it was 65 years before a statewide stock law was passed. So, obviously, today, um, there's not much in the way of commons in the U.S., but uh, as Han makes the case for, it was actually very common uh, in the antebellum south. Um to use common lands, which I thought was very interesting. Nothing that I would ever expect. Something else that I thought was pretty interesting about this was the Bundy Ranch standoff from, I think it was 2014. Um, if you don't remember that, it was some ranchers in Nevada who were court ordered to pay over $1 million in grazing fees by the U.S. Bureau of Land Management. And they basically refused and ended up in an armed standoff with the police and possibly the FBI. I don't remember exactly. Um, but it's kind of funny that they would have been essentially on the same side as uh, the freedmen for, you know, uh, attempted extortion of grazing fees um, for just grazing cattle. Um, and and these guys also, it, this could be a totally cynical thing like the Boogaloo Boys, but they also uh, famously came out in favor of Black Lives Matter last year. Um and their fans were distraught of course because they're all racist assholes um but it's funny they're definitely some of the more interesting (laughs) characters in US politics um so yeah uh I don't think I have a whole lot else on that I actually expected the article to go for longer but um I guess I wrote it up so well that I could just keep going Um, so I will just say that next week will be 
uh, chapter six of Seeing Like a State on Soviet collectivization. So look forward to that. I think that will be a pretty long one. It might end up being two parts, depending on how long we go. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our other episodes on every podcast platform, including Spotify and YouTube. We would love it if you left a nice review on iTunes, which helps people get the show in their recommendations, or tell your friends if you're cool enough to have those. We have a low-key merch shop at Teespring with some cool shirt designs. I know it's not really good to use them, but until there's significant interest in merch, it would be pretty impractical to do a run of merch from a proper printer. So if people are interested, let us know. You can follow us on Twitter at NeighborSciPod. If you want to support the show and help pay our producer, we have a Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash NeighborScience. And our producer for some of our episodes is Casino Socks. You can check out his music at soundcloud.com slash casino socks. And finally, you can check out our website, neighborsciencepodcast.com, which has tags on all our episodes. So if you're looking for a particular subject, it's much easier to find on there than just scrolling through the entire list of episodes in your podcast app. And thanks again for listening.